Gospel of John is right at the beginning of the New Testament. The book of First John is, if you go to Revelation and work your way backwards a little bit, I can't, Trent, can you put it back there for me? Um, it, a book of, if you go to Revelation and then find just a few uh, pages back, you'll find First uh, John. We started in First John uh, last week, and, and just as a quick review for maybe those of you who were not here, First uh, John was written by the Apostle John, and it was one of uh, five books that he read uh, that he wrote in the New Testament. Uh, the first book that he wrote was called the Gospel of John, and you'll find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the purpose that John wrote the Gospel was for the conversion of sinners. So John actually, at the end of his gospel, he says, I could have told you a whole lot of things. Then he says this in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, meaning the things I did write, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted people to know how to be saved. Then we turn our attention, though, today to the gospel, to, not to the gospel, but to the book of 1 John, which is the first of three letters he writes to the church, to this early New Testament church. And, and he wrote not about how to be saved, but he wrote how to know that you're saved, the confirmation of the saved. By the way, I am so sorry for not pointing this out. Philip, would you stand up? We have a new Marine uh, in the house. So proud of that, uh, proud of that young man and the adversity that you've uh, gone through, Philip. We love you, very proud of you, and uh, thank, thank you, family. Thank you for loving on him as well. But John, John wrote uh, in the gospel that I want you to know how to be saved, and in, in his epistle, this letter, this he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John writes his gospel about how to be saved. He writes this letter about how you know that you're saved. And that was important because, as we mentioned last week, the church was facing false teaching from within and persecution from without. From within, they were being asked questions like, is Jesus really God? Does it matter what you do with your body or is only the spirit world matter if God is a spirit? And they were being asked like, do I have to bring the Judeo or the Jewish Christian uh, rituals and laws in order to be saved? So they were asking questions like that in the church, but then outside the church, they were being persecuted for following Jesus, which led them to questions like, why is so much wrong or bad happening to me if i'm doing something right is jesus really worth dying for and if i did die today what's going to happen to me and so john writes this question and it was actually written two thousand years ago but with some very relevant questions to today because i have no doubt there's people in this room that either you are currently asking these questions or you have asked questions like was jesus really god is eternal life how would I know if I'm a child of God? Does it matter how I live if I'm eternally saved? If I'm being persecuted, does God love me or hate me? And what would happen to me if I died today? And so John writes this letter and he uses three characteristics of God throughout the letter. He says that God is life. He says God is light and he says God is love. And, and he doesn't put this in three straight columns for us to make it real simple and easy, but rather he uses them, he 
colors outside the line. He uses life to show that God is love. He uses God as love to show that God is light. He uses, shows God as light to use, or to, to, he uses God as light to show that God is life. He just, he uses a back and forth. And so last week we, we took a little bit of, of, a, of a journey through 1 John. And today we're going to spend the majority of our time focusing on the fact that God is love. And how God's love us, remember John's purpose in writing was to bring assurance, you have eternal life. How does God's love to us bring assurance we have eternal life? But then here we also have to ask, how about our love for God? How does that help us know whether we have eternal life? And what we're going to look at today, it's very important words. Take the word God. Well, what does God mean? That depends on really who you're talking to. Well, the Muslims have a God and Christians have a God. Are they the same God? Well, Muslims don't believe that Jesus Christ was divine and Muslims don't believe Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God. In fact, Muslims would call Christians polytheists, meaning we, we worship multiple gods because they don't believe Jesus is a God, but Christians, well, we look at the Trinity of Jesus as we look at the Trinity of God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three natures, but one person. So we worship one God. So when we say God, well, we might be talking about something different if we're talking about a different religion. Even Jews who worship the same Jehovah of the Old Testament don't believe Jesus truly is the Messiah as Christians do. And so we worship Jesus as God, where Jews don't. So if we say God, we have to know what we're talking about. And that's important because we're going to say God is love. Which God? That's why it's important. Because if God is love, we have to know, well, which God? And we have to know also what eternal life means because what we're talking about is how do we find the assurance of eternal life? And if you talk to some people, like, like if you talk to somebody who may be, uh, uh, may be interested in the, in the Hindu religion, Hindus believe in, in reincarnation and, and continually returning based on karma. And so the eternal life just kind of continues on and on and on. Where someone maybe who is a Buddhist believes that life is full of suffering and, and life just continues until you reach the state of nirvana. But Jesus Christ says something very different about eternal life. In fact, when Jesus Christ talks about eternal life, he doesn't even talk about a state of living. He doesn't talk about a place. When Jesus talks about eternal life, Jesus says this in John chapter 17, verse number three. This is eternal life. That they know you, he's talking to his father, they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus, when he talks about eternal life, he's talking about a relationship, not a length of time. And so John's writing, writing all about who God is, how we can know we have eternal life, and one of the things he says is God is love. So how does God's love fit into eternal life? Well, he says it in John, 1 John chapter 3. And you're, you and I together, we're going to work through chapter 4 a little bit today. But, uh, but I just want to preface it by sharing. 1 John chapter 3 says, See what great love. Now, now th this verse is really important. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Children of God. Born into the family of God so we have eternal life. 
So we have life because of God's love. He goes on to say, and that is what we are. We are children of God. And then, now catch this. Catch this last statement. The reason the world does not know us, meaning the reason the world rejects us, is that it did not know him. No, Jesus. Oh, wait, wait, wait. What's eternal life? Knowing God and Jesus. The reason the world then doesn't know us as children of God, the reason the world's not in the family of God is because they don't know God. So we have to now understand. So if, if that's what life is, then if God is love, what's the definition for love? Because I think if we all came up with our own definition, what we would find is that God doesn't really fit into our definition of love. In fact, through the years, depending on how old you are, uh, our definitions of love and, and happiness change as our values change. To a, a baby, the only thing that's important to a baby is mom and dad. That comforting presence, even the voice is soothing but the touch and the feel of mom and dad. But give that baby a couple of years and all of a sudden the, that baby doesn't want mom and dad. That baby wants any blinking toy that makes noise because the values have changed. Give that little baby, give that little child a few years, maybe 10 years, and all of a sudden as a teenager, you know what matters most? Not little blinky toys, but, but fashion. Because what matters now is the acceptance of my peers. But give that teenager 10 years, and as a young adult, what's most important? Things like cars, expensive toys. But you give that young adult some time, and as the family starts to grow, what matters now is, is job advancement, career uh, recognition, salary, mortgages, retirement. But give that person a couple of decades, and you know what matters Back to people again. My dad, who is 91 years old, whenever our family gets together, if we ever stop and start to have a serious sharing moment, I can, I can already tell you what my dad will say because he's been saying it for the past 20 years. Every time our family gets together and we stop to share, he'll say this. Well, I just, I just have to tell you. I just have to tell you. You know what, what makes my heart? Oh, just my heart. And it just makes me smile is just seeing my family together, loving one another. I just sit back and I just say, thank you, God, for this. That's a man who raised six children in an 1,100-square-foot home who has still, to this day, at 91 years old, has never owned a brand-new car. But now at the end of his life, what matters most is people. So when it comes to our definitions of love, our definitions in this room would be all over the place because we all value different things based on the stages that we are in right now. And so how do we find a definition of love that doesn't go up and down and back and forth based on what we have, what we don't have? And that's where we turn to the, to the scriptures. 
Because in the Bible, we're going to find that the word of God is truth and the word of God is unchanging. And so it's not love that looks at a physical attraction of someone at, at the teenage years. It's, it's not love that someone makes me feel good. It's not love that says, well, if you take away my pain or my problems. It's, it's not love that says, if you give me what I want. It's not love that says, if you answer my requests. But rather, we look at the word to say, what does God's word say love is and so we're going to talk about this morning in first john chapter 4 verse number 7 in first john chapter 4 and verse number 7 we, we read this dear friends let us love one another for love comes from god so, so that's first and foremost love comes from God. God is the source of love. Everyone who loves, now pay attention to this wording, everyone who loves has been born of God, life, and knows God. What's eternal life? Knowing God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Now, knowing God is eternal life, so if you don't love, you don't have eternal life. Why? Because God is love. It's not love is God. God is love, which means this. It, love is not about feeling good it's not about getting what i want if god is love and if i am a child of god this is what it means to my life i do not judge the circumstances i'm sorry i do not judge the love of god based on the circumstances of my life i judge the circumstances of my life based on fact that God is love. That means I don't look at my life and go, ah, oh, it's so miserable. It's so painful. It's so hard. God, you must not be loving. No, 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 no. Because we've just seen love comes from God. God is love. That means I look at the circumstances of my life, no matter what they are, and I say this, I know God is love. So if God was involved in these circumstances, somehow they are loving. And that changes everything. So often we ask the question, well, God, where are you when things get hard? But that's because we're starting with our definition of love. There's plenty of things that every one of us in here never would have chosen for ourselves. But here's what we know. God chose them for us. Since God chose them for us, and since he is love, since I'm a child of God who is loved by the God who is love, that means somehow, someway, even though I can't see it from this vantage point, what is going on in my life God is loving me. But John does, he doesn't, you know, the, forgive the terminology if you understand uh, uh, 
a little bit of pop culture, but, but God doesn't just, John doesn't just say God is love, boom, mic drop. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just say God is love and walk away. He actually helps us understand a little bit more about how this God who is love displays his love to us. Look at verse number nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. We're back to life again. How does God show us his love? Eternal life that comes through his son that he sent to this world. In case we didn't get it the first time, when John said God is love, love is from God, he's going to make it even more clear in verse 10. He's going to say, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now that, you've got to grasp the depth of that. How many of you would claim you love God? Would you raise your hand? This is not a trick question. I love God. Okay, great. My hand's up too, and I'm thankful for that. Can I tell you something? Your love for God is not the definition of love. But I love him. That's not what the definition of love is. We have been created for his glory and for his purposes. But we, in our rebellion, decide, well, I want to live for my needs and for my desires and even for my glory. And so as we chase what we desire, what happens is we get separated from God and we have now found ourselves by chasing our own desires in a hopeless state, separated from the holy God, destined for eternal separation and punishment in a place called hell. Ah! But that God looked down saw us in our helpless situation and he said I love you so much I'm going I'm going to come and I am going to save you by sending my son who is going to live a perfect life and he's going to die on a cross and after he raises from the grave he is going to make it possible for you to take his righteousness as he takes your sin simply through the word belief and faith and if you do that I am going to invite you into my family. I'm going to give you life in my family. You're going to be my child, and you're going to sit at my table, and you are going to spend eternity in my kingdom. Okay, so for us to love a God like that, is that love? That's just a response to his love to us. What is love? Is what God did to us. When he sent Jesus, his perfect son, to take our sins upon himself, to offer us life because the son of God died. That is love. Not what we offer to God, but what God offers to us. That's what love is. Last week I showed you, if you were here, a picture of my son Troy got engaged uh, last week. You know, and he, here's the thing. Many people would look at that and go, oh man, that's love. Think about this. Troy, who's 21, saw a really pretty girl. 
That really pretty girl responded to his love with love of her own. That's love. No, no, what, what love is, is the fact that God, who was perfect, looked at us with love and we ran away from him. And we walked into our own sinful state and he came after us and said, no, I love you so much. Come back to me. But when we stopped, we were filthy. <laughs> but he kept pursuing us. And it was finally when we finally turned to him that he made us lovely. That is love. What God did for us, not our response to God. And that's why our love for God is not the definition of love. That's why it says in verse number 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, now here's what we do. Since we were so loved by God, what do we do? We ought of one another. We're going to see it a little bit more clearly. You understand how of an important a verse in the Bible John 3:16 is? Look at 1 John 3:16. We know John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him Should not perish but have everlasting life John 3 1 John 3 16 says this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ Laid down his life for us that's love <laughs> The love of a perfect Son of God laying his life down for people who were in rebellion to him, who were running from him, and who were certainly far from lovely. But that's what love is, how Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And then what does it say? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I know what you might be thinking because it's the same thing I thought. I've never had anyone ask me to lay down my life for them. Oh, well, that's good, because the very next verse tells us what we could do instead. <laughs> if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Oh, this, this is a challenging verse. If someone has material possessions and we see someone in need, but we don't have pity and move to help them, here's the question. How can the love of God be in that person? If the love of God is not in that person, then God is not in that person because God is love. If God is not in that person, we don't have eternal life. But I thought all we had to do was pray. Dear children, goes on. Let us love with word. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. How do we know we have eternal life? Are you helping people in need? Well, pastor, it's not about works. John is not writing 1 John about how to be saved. The Gospel of John clearly says you are saved by believing 
What John is doing in 1 John is saying, let's talk about that belief, whether it was genuine or not. Let's talk about that faith, whether it was a real faith or not. Well, here's how we know whether this faith in the gospel of John that we talked about is real. How do you love people in need? Do you just say, hey, I'll pray for you. I'm going to help you. Or do you get involved? Hey, brother, man, I just want to let you know, praying, praying for you. I mean, prayers, I'm not trying to downplay that in any way. Please, please don't misunderstand that. But that verse says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And I don't think there's a person in here who would dispute the fact that if someone is cold, we don't just pray for them. We give them a jacket. If someone is homeless, we provide a bed. If someone is hungry, we give them food. If someone is visiting, we make them feel welcome. If someone has a need, we step into that need. And if someone needs help, we serve them. We don't dis- I wouldn't dispute that at all. But here's the question. Why then don't we do more of that? John Calvin gives a great answer. Because the human heart is an idol factory. We should love God, but we don't. We should help our neighbor, but we don't. Why? Because the human heart is constantly building idols which turn our attention away from God. Tim Keller takes this statement and he goes just a little bit further on it. He says this, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. And our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. We take good things and make them God things. But God created us and he knew this was happening. It's why why we read in 1 John chapter number 2, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, because he knows we have an idol factory in our heart. So don't love the world or anything in the world, but we got to stop and pause because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. God loved the world. We're not supposed to love the world, right? But John's going to define what the world is. Jesus, or God, when he sent Jesus He loved the world, the people of the world. John is going to say, that's not about the people of the world. Don't love the ways of the world, because notice what he defines them. If anyone loves the world, this this is a tough statement. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Man, again, you go back to this. Now, John's not saying this is how you get saved. John is John is saying. This is how you know you're saved. Do you love God or do you love the world? For everything in the world, now John's going to define what the world is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So what comes from the Father? We already know this. Love is from God. But the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It comes from the world. So we don't want to love the world. We want to love the Father because the world and its desires pass away, it says. But whoever does the will of God, we're back to eternal life again. Whoever does, does the will of God lives forever. 
The lust of the flesh, just to give you a little bit of a definition, it means the wicked desires that are stirred by our physical or emotional needs, like the pleasures. The lust of the eyes are, are the wicked desires that are stirred by the things we see and we covet, like passion and possessions. And, and the pride of life, the, the wicked desires that are, that are motivated by like pride, such as power and prestige and popularity. And, and, and God says, don't love the world. Why? Because the world is not from God. Love is from God. This is not of the Father. It's of the world. And so what happens is when we love the world, we don't love God. It's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. When Eve took the fruit, you got to catch the description of the fruit. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, good for food, pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life. When Eve reached for that fruit, what she was doing was saying, I don't need God. When she reached for the fruit and took it, she sinned. And what was the result of her relationship with God? When God came back next time, what happened? What were they doing? Hiding, right? Hiding. Why is that a problem? Because what's eternal life? Knowing God. What did it say? What did God say would happen to Adam on the day they took of the fruit? On the day that you eat thereof, you will surely... They lived for hundreds of years. But if eternal life is a relationship with God and they were hiding from God, no wonder God said on that day, when you choose the world over me, you will not have eternal life. That's why we needed Jesus. So you want to have the assurance of eternal life? Do you reach for God? Do you love God? Or do you love the world? Do you love God? Or do you love the, the world? David Platt, who's a pastor in, in, in D.C., he made a statement. I'm going to read it, just, just a little portion here. He says, The greatest challenge facing the American church today is not persecution from the world, although there are some around the world who are truly being persecuted for their faith. The greatest challenge facing the American church today is seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon said over a over hundred years ago, he made the statement, the reason the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has such great influence over the church. That, no, that, that's not today. That was a hundred years ago. Where have we gone since then? Platt went on to say this, and it's a little bit of a paragraph, so, so forgive me. He said, put your finger on any place in the history of the world where the church made a difference, and you will be able to see where the church began and where the world ended and I'm not talking about this church in particular. We're just talking about the church and understand that. It's hard to tell today where the world ends and the church begins. The lifestyles of professing Christians today look just like the world around us. Christians are just as immoral, self-focused, and materialistic. Pornography, fornication, divorce, marital abuse are in the church. The priorities of professing Christian parents look identical to the priorities of non-Christian parents. We cart our kids all over town, teaching our kids to be great at the things the world says we are to be great at. 
And then one last little bit. A survey was taken in his church's youth group. This is a church an hour and a half from here. What is hindering your family's spiritual life? What is hindering your family's spiritual life? Over 80% of the teens said busyness in schedule. And then Platt made this statement. It's not what our kids are getting that is bad. It's what they're not getting. Hours of practice, hours at a screen, and minutes, if that, in the word of God and prayer with their families. No wonder our kids are walking away from the church in droves. In some cases, all they are walking away from is a one-hour gathering on Sundays that didn't really impact the rest of their lives. We live like the world. We look like the world. We love the world. I read that, and I was challenged to the core. Because, you know, as I was studying through John... John, first John, what, what really blows my mind is we're told not to love the world, but do you know what, what John says? I'm sorry. Do you know what John says about the world? Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Jesus himself said in, in John chapter, oops, Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world that's why the world hates you so think think this we're commanded not to love the world that hates us and we choose the world that hates us instead of choosing the god who loves us who is love who loved us when we were unlovable and who sent his son to die in our place. And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, how backwards is my life? Why are Christians, why am I not so overwhelmed with the love of God that the world holds no appeal to me? You don't have to tell me to love the world. I love God. I don't. What if we as Christians... We're so full of the love from God that we lived with the love for God that was evident to the world around us. In just a moment, I'm going to show you just a short clip. You're going to hear a story of someone who lived their life in such a way with a love for God that it was evident they did not have a love for the world, but their love for God impacted the world that was watching them. Trent, would you start this video? to the man, if you and your family 
family will not recant your faith. All will surely Man didn't know what to say or what to do. So the only thing that came to mind for him were the words of the song that he himself had composed when he had first surrendered his life to God. He began to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Turning back. Just that horrific children that given another chance, this time with his wife's life on the line, and yet he continued to sing, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. None go with me, still I will follow, though none go tragic death, he was given one final opportunity, this time to save himself, and yet he continued to sing. family died on that day, something remarkable happened. A seed was planted in the heart of that village chief, a seed that began to grow over time, and eventually he called the community together in that very same neighborhood, in that very same square, and he renounced his former faith and declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And a celebration broke out in that moment, and the gospel began to flourish and to grow in that community, not just in that village, but across the whole region, because they had seen real faith, and they knew the true character of God because of a family that believed and sacrificed even under the penalty of death. This is love.
us loving God. That, that's not real love. On assurance of eternal life, it's all about how he is our father and he has invited us into his Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you how clearly you loved us past the law. God, I'm sure that everyone in this room this morning of salvation would, would be able to say, yes, I know that it's not what I've done for God at all. It is all in what God has done for me. That is salvation. What God did for me. My sin to die for me. To give me the righteousness that he lived in my place. So that I could have a relationship with the Father. And in knowing God and knowing Jesus, I could have eternal life. And that eternal life is seen as I then turn and love those around me in the way that God loved me. Hey, Jesus, would you, would you work in our hearts? God, would you call those, Lord, who are still on the run from you and, and thinking that they could be good enough to make it to, to heaven on their own without coming through Jesus? Would you, would you draw them to you? Show them how much you absolutely adore them and they are the treasure of your heart so much so you gave your life to redeem us and then god would you work in the hearts of those who we we know that there was a day there was a moment we turned to you but the appeal of the world is so real and there are times when it draws our attention away from God, because we are we're looking after things that we think will bring fulfillment apart from God, but they never will. And all they do is affect that relationship between us and God, that relationship that is the basis of eternal life. God, would you help us to keep you as our priority? That our families live for you. And what we do is live for your honor and for your glory first and, and foremost because we are so full of the love that you have given to us. You've given us a seat at your table. You've given us the eternal riches. When you who were rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich through your poverty. Oh, God, may, may you ignite our hearts that we don't just be satisfied with the fact that God loves us, but we rejoice so much that God loves us that it overflows into the love of people around us who then see the God who loves them too. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I'd love to have that conversation with you. I'll be standing at the back door as we leave. I'd love to have that conversation with you. If you are here today and you know Jesus, oh, what's, what's taking the affection of your heart away from God? And how do we get back to that loving, happy, joyful 
life-giving relationship with God. It's not about how hard we love him. It's about receiving over and over and over the love he has already poured out to us. Just letting that fill us to overflow. God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for being our father. Thank you for being our friend. Thank you for watching over us as we run hard from you. But you love us so much. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to give you a few moments to talk to the Lord. Aaron, could we close with that, that last song? Just sitting at the Father's table. It's not about our love for God. It's about God's love for us. But how do we love others because of God's love in us? Thank you for who you are. Father, God, Lord, friend, Savior, God. God is love. May we leave as children of God, sharing the love of our Father 